I graduated from college in 1969. It was the end of a difficult period. John F. Kennedy was assassinated while I was in high school. Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were shot and killed while I was in college. The civil rights movement continued throughout my high school and college years, as did the war in Vietnam. Uh, civil unrest, protests, and profound questioning of cultural assumptions was an interesting and ongoing part of my growing up. I grew up in a blue-collar, working-class community in Ohio, and while the social turmoil was on television, it didn't really make it to our town very much. We high school seniors gathered in front of the school on the last day of class to honor the tradition of the entire senior class being tardy, challenging the Grove City High School principal and authorities to see whether or not they would give the entire class tardy slips on the last day of class. While we were standing around, several guys burned their high school library cards. It was as bold as it got at Grove City. There was a sexual revolution going on, but I was a Baptist, so I only read about it. <clears throat> the 60s was a disruptive, unsettling time, and it was a cultural moment that formed me and what I would discover some of the institutions that have subsequently influenced me. I didn't grow up a Southerner. I mentioned I grew up in Ohio, but I went south for college and seminary and graduate school. The Baptist college I attended was deeply embedded in Baptist life and folkways, and it was surrounded by a culture that did not find those patterns of life odd or out of the ordinary. While in college, I served as a pastor of a rural Tennessee congregation and subsequently as a youth minister at a larger urban congregation. I enrolled at Southern for my MDiv within months of graduating from college. There were some students there, that, primarily to avoid the draft, but many of them had a background much like mine. A typical pattern of, of education at Southern at that time was a lecture. The more techie professors used an overhead projector, but that was as far as technology went at Southern in those days. A few classes were team taught, which was more like relay tag teaching, in which different solo acts uh, did their thing in sequence with one another. My professors were good lecturers. I can still recall some of the things that they said. The experience had come to be considered so typical a background and pattern of theological education that it's sometimes considered as the normative reference point by which we evaluate things since. The 60s was a tumultuous time in the South and, and for the Southern Baptist Convention. Among some Southern Baptists, the civil rights movement raised consciousness about racism and social justice but for others, it strengthened the resolve to keep the South as it was. The legacy was both a form of increased liberal sentiment and increased conservative sentiment. As the South changed in significant ways, its mother church could not help but be changed. By the time I entered seminary in 1969, the SBC leaders I knew were hopeful that the turbulence of the 60s would give way to a more promising, maybe even progressive, future. In 1969, the denomination promoted a forward and optimistic theme, 70s onward. It was on the Sunday school literature. It was on different variety of denominational expressions at that time. I remember a few of us sitting around a table in what was then the Southern Seminary cafeteria, drinking coffee and thinking up possible future themes. Stay alive in 75. <laughs> we'll be in a fix in 76. Give them heaven in 77. It'll be too late in 78. We thought of a few others, but you get the idea. We didn't grow up in the 60s without acquiring a, a dose of cynicism anyway. What was imagined as a potentially progressive decade ended differently as a conservative resurgence emerged and gained firm control of denominational structures, agencies, and institutions. 
For the next 50 minutes of your lives, I want to talk about what was and never was and what will be and never be in the education of ministers. I began with my era of theological education as an entry point and a reference point for the drivers that change theological education. Those drivers are cultural moments, churchly structures, and educational practices. So let's turn attention to what was and never was. My story is old enough that it probably feels like ancient history to many of you here in the chapel today. Uh, But the history I want to recount is even older. I want to take you on a 20-minute tour of 200 years of theological education. So, for you students, let's assume it's 1800. You have sense to call to ministry, and unlike most persons who will never receive any advanced theological education, you have sought to pursue some. The women are free to leave the room if you want, since they were not permitted to enroll in divinity programs until the 20th century. I was hoping you would laugh. (laughs) I would prefer that you stay. Theological education would have been better had you been there back then. None of you would have been in seminary because there were no theological schools in Texas or anywhere else. Colleges provided the education of ministers, which reflected a pattern of education that had developed in the colonies. Glenn Miller, the premier historian of American theological education, notes that clergy and laity were to receive the same education, one that fitted them ideally for service in either of two public realms, the church or the commonwealth. The colonists had adopted an English model of the learned gentleman for both of those environments, the commonwealth and the church. Learned meant steeped in Greek, Roman, and European classics and languages. It did not mean any particular proficiency in biblical texts and theology other than that they might show up as part of the Western canon. If you were a student then, you would have been expected to read Cicero in Latin and Homer in Greek and philosophy, literature, and English and history in English. While the education of ministers was at the center of what these schools were doing, there was no specialized theological education. You just got a particular dose of what anybody else who was in the college got. As the century began to mature, education for Protestant ministers gradually moved from the colleges to the first theological schools. The first two freestanding Protestant seminaries in the U.S. were Andover in Massachusetts, now Andover New Theological School, and what is now Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. Andover was founded in 1808 by Congregationalists who opposed the appointment of a liberal Unitarian-leaning professor to the Hollis Chair at Harvard Divinity School. Princeton was founded uh, as the Theological Seminary of the Presbyterian Church. That was its first name in 1811. And it functioned to separate ministerial education from the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton University, and to establish an institution under the direct control of the church. Such an institution had not existed. Princeton required faculty to swear an ex animo, you know, from out of my life, out of my soul, oath, in order to be faculty members, uh, that their theology was that of the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. And while Andover was not under strict uh, church control, the founding documents required every professor to be, quote, a man of sound and orthodox principles in divinity and to make public declaration of his opposition not only to atheists and infidels but to Jews, Mohammedans, Arians, Pelagians, Antinomians, Socinians, Unitarians, and Universalists and to all other heresies and errors ancient and modern which may be opposed to the gospel of Christ or hazardous to the souls of men. Now that's one serious contract you have to sign. These two schools and the scores of others that were founded as the 19th century progressed 
changed the structure of the education of ministers. Education moved away from the study of the classics and the cultivation of Christian gentlemen and increasingly focused on a specialized theological curriculum. The curriculum described in the founding documents of Andover included natural theology, which was apologetics, philosophy, and ethics, sacred literature, ecclesiastical history, and Christian theology. Throughout the first half of the 19th century, these schools continued to form. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was founded in 1859 out of Furman University following the pattern that Andover and Princeton had started only half a century later. So we now have specialized schools. And then what happens through the 19th century, particularly the last half of the 19th century, uh, is that the body of divinity emerged into disciplines. And as disciplines became more defined, scholarship advanced, and as scholarship advanced, controversies emerged. As American scholars attended, uh, Glenn Miller argues that Old Testament appears to be the first area that developed its own specialty, and New Testament the last, since everybody in a theological school was responsible for the New Testament. Scholarship expanded dramatically and began taking on the forms that we associate with it today. The Society of Biblical Literature and Exegesis and the American Society of Church History were formed in the 1880s. There had not been an academic guild related to any of the disciplines of theology prior to that time. As American scholars attended to new biblical and other disciplines, controversies ensued in both conservative and liberal schools. Some of the creeds to which faculty were required to subscribe at the beginning of the 19th century, like the Andover one, had become less affirmable as the result of scholarly efforts during the century. Crawford Toy at Southern lost his professorship for views that were increasingly accepted in Old Testament studies. Charles Briggs at Union Theological Seminary in New York lost his fight with the Presbyterians over his views on the Bible and was defrocked by them. He kept his job at Union, but Union lost its ties with the Presbyterian Church. William Whitsett resigned as president of Southern because of claims he made as a church historian. There was no evidence of any of this kind of pressure before uh, the, first, the second half of the 19th century. A history of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary characterizes the mid-19th century Methodist perception this way. Someone said, we'd got along quite well so far without seminaries. Why run the risks of quenching the spirit and opening the floodgates of heresy? It's a high view of theological education. <laughs> Garrett was started amid the wearies, and in an era of deeply competitive confessional commitments, when people assumed that hell was very hot and a person could go there for believing the wrong stuff, theological schools often became centers of doctrinal battles. And it was during this time more so than during the first half of the century or any in the 18th century, that American Protestantism developed a division between fervent faith and piety on the one hand and scholarly study of theological disciplines on the other. The division is deep and abiding. It's been the basis for organizational battles for denominations and family battles for individuals. Some of you might have been cautioned not to let seminary destroy your faith if you had to come to seminary, after all. One year when I was at Southern and the SBC battles were raging, a trustee who considered himself a friend of the faculty spoke to us about how it is better to be a fool on fire than a scholar on ice. It's not just an American issue. John Wesley wrote, in 18th century England, unite the pair so long disjoined knowledge and vital piety. The development of theological disciplinary scholarship did not invent the problem, but it certainly acted as an accelerant to it in the last half of the 19th century. Well, 
with freestanding seminaries and theological disciplines and more technical forms of theological scholarship, the basic architecture for the 20th century theological education was taking shape. If you were a Baptist ministry student in Texas at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, you likely would have either worked here at Baylor or you would have followed B.H. Carroll and his call to establish a a freestanding graduate-level seminary uh, that had become uh, and become students at the new Southwestern Seminary. You would have studied Bible and theology, history, biblical languages, biblical archaeology, and some courses that were just developing in the first half of the 20th century, like church efficiency and Sunday school pedagogy. You would never have had a course in pastoral care or church and community because those areas didn't exist until much later in the 20th century, nor would you have had any field education. you would have heard very few lectures because the primary pedagogical strategy in the first half of the 20th century, especially for conservative Protestant schools, was recitation. My father was at Southern Seminary in the 1930s, and he's told me about recitation. It involves students reading carefully an assigned text, the professor asking questions of individual students in class, students Uh, responding with the summary of the textbook's answer and the professor commenting on the answer. Imagine a whole course of that every day, making sure you had your reading or you were somehow very anonymous, and the professor calling on you to answer in the terms and context of the book what you were supposed to have read before class. No Wikipedia to help you uh, quickly on your smartphone. You just either had done it or didn't, and the professor marked off whether you had done it or didn't. Recitation was not the only teaching strategy, but it was so common that when some of my professors at Southern began using the lecture in their early years of teaching, some of the older faculty questioned the practice. The concern was that a lecture gives total editorial control to the teacher. If you have a textbook, you know what the thing says. And if the professor just asks questions about the textbook, you know what the students are getting. But put some of these truant professors in a room, close the door, they could say whatever in the world they want to say. And who knows whether it's good or not, or true or not, or pious or not, or orthodox or not. So the new educational invention of the lecture was at first bemoaned because it moved a way of thinking about how we construct uh, theological education and arguments. The maturing of the 20th century brought changes to theological education, but more importantly, changes to an understanding, to understanding ministry as a profession. Theological education in the 20th century had taken on changed institutional forms. Disciplines had become more sophisticated as scholarly areas of work. The work of ministry had become more complex. And the image of Protestant ministry that emerged by mid-century was that it was a profession. As ministry, which had always been a calling, as it became increasingly understood as a profession, the education of ministers took on the characteristics of education for other professionals. Field education or contextual education was introduced for the first time in ATS-accredited schools after World War II. Courses in church and society developed, as did programs in clinical pastoral education and congregational studies. Courses in religious education, church administration, evangelism became common. All of this curricular innovation reflected a model of professional ministry in which the minister exercised specialized professional knowledge and skills. You came into a church, and part of the reason you were there is you knew things, you knew how to do things, you knew what to say that the other people didn't know. It was like going to the doctor's office. The doctor knows things you don't know, and you trust the physician at that point. H. Richard Niebuhr wrote about the pastor as pastoral director in the purpose of the church and its ministry in 1956, and in a way affirmed the professional understanding of ministry. And James Glass wrote Profession Minister in 1970. It was one of the first books I was assigned when I went to Southern Seminary. 
The Niebuhr book was a report of a study of theological education sponsored by ATS, and the Glass book was written with a grant from ATS, and as such, they reflected a more corporate perception of ministry as profession. I was educated at a time when ministry as profession and the professional education of ministers had grown to full maturity. We were conflicted about it. We didn't know whether we wanted to be considered that way, but the educational center was understanding ministry education as professional education. Why is my question or statement what was and never was important? I've spent half of my time in this lecture talking about the history of theological education. Why? Well, some current commentators about theological education assume that my late 60s and early 70s background was the historical norm and then talk about how the settled world of theological education is changing dramatically. The point of this history is that any settlement in the education of ministers has been relatively short-lived. Theological education in America has been changing since Texas was part of New Spain. What was, in the awkward grammar of my title, was a changing form and content of theological education. What never was was any long-term consistency in the educational forms or educational practices of theological education. After 200 years of changes, students at Truett are privileged to study with professors who have learned theological disciplines deeply and well, to study in a school that has form and shape and purpose, and to learn with an ever-increasing variety of educational practices. Every one of those realities was contested upon its invention, was seen as possibly the hotbed of some ruination of the church, and somehow found a way to educate ministers at particular moments, in particular ways, at particular times. We'll return to the second half, what will be and never be. In the context of the ongoing changes in the education of ministers, what will be the patterns of theological education in the future? To begin answering that question, I want to return to the story about my theological education. I mentioned the turbulent 60s and the changing life of Southern Baptist because changes in theological education are heavily influenced by changes in the culture of the church of which the seminary is situated. I entered Southern with all the presumed appropriate normative background, and those credentials did not qualify me to understand the drivers that would change the denomination and its congregations and how much these changes would, in turn, drive changes in theological education over the ensuing decades. The changes in the culture, the place of religion in the culture, the changes in religious practice will drive changes in theological education and focusing on those drivers is likely more reliable than predicting the exact form the future will take. I'll try doing both, but I'm more comfortable talking with you about what I think are the drivers that are influencing the system right now um, more than predicting the form uh, of the future. Before I proceed, however, I want to tell you what I meant by the never will be part of the title, so you don't have to wait if you need to leave or read something else. What never will be is the end of theological education. The Christian Project has made it through the past 2,000 years, and it'll make it through this century. Christianity has always had a pattern of educating its leaders and people who want to learn about the faith of the tradition and the faith that is in them. Justo Gonzalez has chronicled the 2,000-year history of education of Christian leaders, and this effort is not going to stop. The forms of education have shifted, perhaps more dramatically across this long history than they have in the few hundred years I just talked about. But efforts to educate Christians and their leaders have been continuous. It's important not to confuse the form that this education is taken with the function. Forms change. Fundamental functions do not. It's going to be around. Some people are predicting, they're calling me on the phone saying, you know, when's the last seminary going to close? Uh, 
Well, since I first got that call about 10 years ago, we've admitted 30 new seminaries to the membership of ATS. The direction seems to be in the opposite way than what was being predicted. So two parts of this question about what will be. First, what are the most influential drivers, um, forces driving change in theological education? And second, what might the future look like? The first driver is the changing social status of religion in American culture. This is a big one. In the first decade of the 19th century, when I said if you were 1800, this is what it would be like, back when the education of ministers uh, was really an education in the classics of Western civilization, church leaders were shaping culture in North America as much as they were leading religious institutions. Joseph Willard was president of Harvard in 1800. He came to the presidency of Harvard from the pastorate, as did his two successors. I think it would be very hard for a pastor to be named president of Harvard University in this era of both uh, distancing of religion in the culture and the highly specialized work of university administration. Uh, Benjamin Moore, uh, the president of what is now Columbia University, was the Anglican Bishop of New York when he became president. Clergy in colonial America and in the first decades of nationhood contributed significantly to the cultural and intellectual leadership of the nation as a whole. And while religion didn't have a legal status as in a state church, it influenced the development of American culture and had significant cultural privilege. The culture-shaping power of religion has weakened because culture has reassigned religion from a public good to a more personal and private good. As religion is privatized, its cultural privilege wanes. You can see it in lots of ways. Uh, new church uh, facilities having trouble getting um, permits to build or to add the parking lots they need because it means uh, land is going off the public taxable payroll. There used to be a time when the community thought the church was a good thing and that was a useful uh, uh, removal of something from the, from the taxable uh, law. Uh, at the church I attend in Pittsburgh, um, it, 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 it's like this one. The, the chancel is closest part of the sanctuary to the road. And they wanted to widen the road in front. And the first proposal from our suburban township was to take all of the, all of the property from the church uh, to add the two lanes. We could have had drive-by communion. You know, the, the road would have been five feet in front of the, uh, of the you know, the outside of the chancel. We, we protested and worked and got a different arrangement. But I don't think 40 years ago the township would have thought, well, let's just take all of the property from the church. It's, it would put, it's already off the tax roll, so we're not losing anything. Not a perception that there is a public good being served by these institutions, like congregations. The privilege is being withdrawn. It, it will hold on in the South longer than anywhere else in the country. Uh, I, I'm quite sure there will be there will be thousands of Baptists in Texas long after Jesus has come. Um, there are just so many of them here. There's going to be a cultural privilege here and in other south and, and in southeastern states. But for the country as a whole, religion is being moved over to the corner, made a boutique interest for those who have boutique interests. The second driver is the changing structures of Protestantism. Denominations are losing their ability as the central organizing structures in American Protestantism. When they were the strongest denomination provided patterns of work for congregations, resources those congregations could use in doing their work, and effective ways for congregations to work in larger ecclesial contexts on missions, social ministry, education, education, and patterns of uh, public witness. Every Protestant seminary founded in the 19th century was a product of denominational effort. 
while the current version of these structures continues to have significance in the landscape of American religion, they no longer have the capacity to organize and resource religious practices in the way they did in the mid-20th century. Told you I grew up in Ohio. I remember my family's first vacation to the South. We stopped. We were in some, you know, tiny little Baptist church in Ohio, and we stopped at some of these uh, uh, big Southern Baptist churches on the way, and we were amazed that you could have a Baptist church that size. We were also amazed church after church as we were out several weeks going and coming back that they all seemed to function in a very similar way. Same Sunday school literature, same patterns of missions emphasis as we look through the bulletin, etc. That's the work of a denomination. No one traveling even across the heavily Christianized South would have the same experience now. The, the homogenizing factor that denominations provided is pretty well gone. As denominations have weakened, The Christian identities that denominations cultivated have lessened. People seem less aware of what it means to be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran. Presbyterians and Methodists move easily from a congregation of one denomination to a congregation of the other, as if Arminian and Calvinist positions are best resolved on the basis of which congregation has the better youth ministry program. The Pew Pew U.S. Religious Landscape researchers conclude that 44% of American adults have either switched religious affiliation, moved from being unaffiliated with any religion to becoming affiliated, or dropped any connection to a specific religious tradition altogether. That's almost half of the adult population. You know that in the churches where you work, that people who are joining them are as likely not to come from a church of that denomination as they are churches of other denominations. This denomination switching has resulted in an altered sense of Christian identity. I have to confess at this point that uh, since there are no CBF congregations in Pittsburgh, I have morphed into a Methodist in my sojourn uh, in Pittsburgh. And at the Methodist church that I attend in Pittsburgh, I've seen people cross themselves at the communion rail and occasionally genuflect as they enter the pew. I'm no expert on Methodist piety, but I don't think these practices were taught on confirmation retreats. Patterns of piety and religious practice have theological homes that shape a way of being Christian, but as practices are separated from those homes and blended with other practices, the theological coherence of any particular Christian identity becomes strained. People are attending church differently. In my congregation, they were noticing that the membership had been rising, but that the worship attendance hadn't been rising commensurately. So they started looking at all of those pads where people, in this church anyway, signed their worship attendance. And what they discovered is that the people they thought were the most regular attenders were not coming as regularly as they assumed they did, they would. And in fact, that's true in Canada, and that's true in the United States. People who are good, regular church attenders are not showing up as regularly as they once did. Folks in North America are still going to church. The United States and Canada have the highest estimated percentage of church attenders of any Western democracy, but they are going to church differently than they used to go. We don't know for sure how many people go to church. What we do know from the social science literature is if you call them on the phone and say, did you go to church, they will lie about it. (laughs) Now, why you lie about whether you went to church or not to an anonymous phone survey, I've never quite figured out what what kind of drives that sort of behavior. But it is, in fact, true. There's one study where they took the attendance at every house of worship in one Ohio county, and then the following week they did a random phone survey of the people in that county, and far more reported they had been at church than were actually recorded as having been at church in that county. Denominations are changing. The culture and uh, the privilege that extends to religion is changing. Individual Christian identities are changing. And the U.S. population, a fourth driver, is shifting in profound ways. 
By 2040, the American population will have completed a fundamental shift that began in the 20th century. This nation of immigrants, largely from Europe and Britain, will become a nation in which white will be the racial minority. By mid-century, if not before, persons of African, Asian, and Hispanic descent will outnumber white residents. The America that was the new world of Europe, with forced African immigration, will become the new world of the world. This is a huge change, and no liberal democracy anywhere has ever gone through this kind of change in its population. Communities of faith that become culturally and racially amphibious will thrive, and communities that cannot make this shift will decline, and the same will be true for seminaries. It is, it is huge. You know how we have stumbled on every new racial reality in this country for a hundred years, if not longer. And the biggest new racial reality is going to be emerging while many of you are exercising most of the years of your ministry. And finally, the face of Christianity, what people think of when they think of Christian practices and patterns, is changing. In the past, North American Christians have been able to say that the normative center of Christian practice is the way we do it here in North America. And those practices you read or see uh, from, from the global south are newer, perhaps eccentric. Uh, they're the exception. We are the rule. In your ministry, North America will become the exception. And the majority world will become the rule. It will be the way the world sees Christianity. That will change us in North America. Um, Christianity is on the move to the global south, and as it, as it indigenizes there, its practices and characteristics will look less like the West. Christian practices across ecclesial families are becoming more Pentecostal, reflecting an increasingly normative expression of Christianity in the global south. A pope from South America seems to be able to put a different face on the Roman Catholic Church without changing a single doctrinal commitment and do it in a relatively short time. The majority world is going to do the same thing to the rest of Christianity. These are drivers that are influencing the work of congregations, the practice of ministry, and the education of ministers. So what might the future hold? Typical lecture, I spent three-fourths of my time setting up what was really supposed to be the focus of the lecture. But that's the way lectures are. First, I think that the professional model of Protestant theological education is in decline, and we are at the beginning of a very different model. I will give that model a name of formational theological education, it is a model that was in the background in the education of ministers, but it will, be, it will come increasingly to the foreground. In the formational model of theological education, specialized skill and knowledge remain crucial, but they take a back seat to a deep, abiding, and maturing sense of faith. In an age of diminishing cultural influence of the church and increasing secularity of the culture at large, religious leaders will need to be authentically and deeply faithful. Education for ministers, which has tended to assume that the church is responsible for Christian growth and the school for knowledge and skills, is shifting so that the school will bring Christian growth and development more to the center of what it does. The Truett curriculum with covenant groups and other requirements that focus on Christian character and maturity point to the future for major segments of Protestant theological education. Perhaps an early uh, uh, statement of formational theological education actually showed up in the ATS accrediting standards adopted in the 1990s. This is the only part of the accrediting standards I will quote for which you may be grateful, but I'd like you to listen carefully to what it says. In a theological school, 
The overarching goal is the development of a theological understanding that is aptitude for theological reflection and wisdom pertaining to responsible life and faith. So it has an intellectual element, but that intellectual element is undergirding a sense of what it means to be Christian. The statement goes on, comprehended in this overarching goal or others, such as deepening spiritual awareness, growing in moral sensibility and character, gaining intellectual grasp of the tradition of the faith community, and acquiring abilities requisite to the exercise of ministry in that community. It was a controversial statement. How do you put that in the accrediting standards? How does a school lose its accreditation by not help if it doesn't help students become Christian enough? How would you know whether they have become Christian or not? How would you, are you, how would you flunk a student out of seminary if you're so inclined because they didn't get to be Christian enough? There are all kind of complexities. It pushes hard at how we understand the fundamental work of a school but it's right there in the accrediting standards. And I think it was adopted in part because people were thinking about a future that was coming, about a time in the life of the church when it wasn't going to have the the cozy cultural home it has had, and when you as pastors and leaders of nonprofits and communities of faith and church-related organizations are out there, it's going to require people to know that you are deeply and truly and really a Christian human being. And if you have a lot of technical knowledge and some great skills, but you don't have that one, it won't count for much. Well, formational theological education. Secondly, I think the future holds a lot of educational diversity. Theological education practices will be more diverse in almost every way. Theological schools have a tendency to hold on to practices that they adopted long ago, and when they change, they tend to surrender. They do not tend to surrender one thing they're doing for another. Rather, they change by addition. They just keep adding layers on. They kind of, seminaries grow like trees. They just keep adding rings. They never get rid of a prior ring. Diversity of educational practices will grow as new schools are founded and adopt altogether new models, as older schools add new layers, and as deep institutional stress drives yet other innovations. The result will be that the considerable uniformity that exists across desperate, uh, disparate Christian communities will give way to diversity of educational and institutional practices. In the ATS questionnaires administered by many schools to entering students, The top reasons for choosing the seminary uh, that entering students have identified is the perceived theological position of the school and its geographical location. You can take bad theology if it's close enough, is how I think you, you know, in, in in your judgment. I think those have been reasons for the most part because so much else the schools do is so similar. In the future, prospective student choices will be more complex because schools will be significantly more diverse. Schools will have to decide what practices they will engage, discern why they choose the practices they do, and assess the impact on mission and service that's inherent in them. I think there will be a changed disciplinary and intellectual work. The trajectory of knowledge will continue its rapid rate of growth, and to handle the growth, increasing specialization will emerge in the theological disciplines. Theological schools will respond in one of two ways. Some schools, likely only a few, will have the capacity to increase faculty size to accommodate the increasing specialization. Other schools, likely the vast majority, will need to re-discipline faculty responsibilities, and faculty intellectual work. These schools will need to return to an earlier pattern in which each professor was responsible for a broad area of the body of divinity rather than a narrow disciplinary focus. The result will be a new kind of generalist discipline. This development will be counter to a dominant perception in the current moment of intellectual history in which broad categories, meta-narratives, are considered to be intrinsically flawed as intellectual strategies. 
Theological education will need to identify the qualities of scholarly competence appropriate for this broader intellectual frame of work. And in the context of this redisciplining, North American theological scholarship will need to become much more attentive to scholarly work from the majority, from the majority world. In this century, scholarship will be as incomplete if it does not include scholarship from the global south as it would have been in mid-20th century if it did not look to British and European scholarship. One more comment about change and then a conclusion. The education of ministers will need to give increased attention to the sources of wisdom that pastors and church professionals can bring to theological education. As seminaries have leaned into their academic identity, they've maximized the kind of wisdom that accrues from advanced degrees, from research and writing, and from participating in the technical work of academic guilds. Other sources of wisdom equally intellectually lively and viable accrue from the discipline of preparing sermons every week, figuring out what it takes to make congregations work well, engaging a faith community and witness in word and deed, and being with people in the middle of unspeakable pain and sadness. Pastors are on the front lines of the changes occurring in American religion. They and their congregations are inventing new paradigms of congregational ministry, and they're dealing concretely with many of the issues that will form the next theory of practice for ministry. Theological schools will need to find ways to honor and use pastoral wisdom in the education of ministers. There are some other things that will probably characterize the school's development over the next 30 or 40 years. When you come back as old as I am and try to remember what it was you did in theological education, I want to close with two comments. The first is this. Christianity in North America is changed but not diminished. Loving neighbor as self is still noble moral guidance. Doing good remains crucial to the common good. The Christian message has not lost its power to heal brokenness or to guide the human family in life-giving ways. Justice and mercy, grace and forgiveness can make human beings and social structures whole. They can heal the world and us in it. The Christian message has not been rendered powerless. Its promise has not been eviscerated. Remember that. Don't ever forget that. A day of your work in this school or your ministry beyond its doors. The second is to acknowledge that this can be a worrisome time. Religious practices are changing. The population is changing. The pattern of Christian identity is changing. The social location of religion in the culture is changing. And the work of ministry is changing. And here you students are, investing money, talent, and years of your lives in response to what you perceive as a call to serve a gospel of grace, love, and forgiveness. Being educated for ministry has always been a soul-crunching experience. But most of the people have gone before you have graduated in more settled times in the life of the church, and not so for you. We are on the front edge of the changes coming, not the tail end. You faculty have spent your entire adult lives sharpening your disciplinary knowledge and pedagogical skills and I've suggested that you may have to spend the rest of your careers figuring out new intellectual paradigms and educational practices. That's a hard word. It's worrisome. Two weeks ago, the president of an ATS school died of cancer. He had posted blogs throughout the nine months of the disease. I found them deeply moving and thoroughly Christian, some of the most Christian testimonial I have ever read in my life. The text in which his wife, who had also written some of the blogs, announced his death, contained a letter he had received from a friend toward the end of his illness. And I want to share part of that letter with you. My favorite unique memory, the friend writes, the now deceased president, with you was years ago at Wellspring Retreat Center. 
You remember we were given various iterations of the trust walk exercise. In one of those exercises, you were supposed to guide our, we were supposed to guide our blindfolded partner from behind using only our voice. You walked in front of me as I directed you with only words into a small thicket of woods. Blindfolded, I had you stepping over logs and ducking down below strong branches. You went slowly and could feel dead wood snapping beneath your feet and all the twigs on your face as you brushed past them. You knew that you were walking through a very thick and tangled terrain, a precarious path for someone blindfolded, having to trust only the words spoken. Then I brought you almost out of the woods to the very edge of a large, flat, grassy field and stopped you six inches from the grass. You were still standing in the woods blindfolded. You had no idea that all the tangles and tripping hazards and undergrowth and slapping branches and hard trees were behind you and that before you was only a broad, flat, lush field of green grass. Then I said, at the count of three, I want you to run straight forward as fast as you can. And with trust, you took off running, charging ahead, screaming your lungs out, flailing your arms. And then the friend writes his dying friend. This is the journey ahead of you, my friend. Whatever it is that you take it, the word is behind you but also goes before you. The word made flesh walks with you and is with you, in you. And therefore, my friend, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Theological schools are in a bit of a thicket. We are at the edge of the woods. The clearing is not visible, and our task is to run as fast as we can. The ancient words of Julian of Norwich fashion an affirmation, we need to sing until we see, and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. One, two, three, run.